The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. A minister would tell us that his function is that of preaching the word of God. And of course it follows that since the state has proven that there is no God, that would make the function of a minister somewhat academic as well. There is a God. are in error, Mr. Wordsworth. There is no God. The state has proven that there is no God. You cannot erase God with an edict. You are obsolete, Mr. Wordsworth. A lie. No man is obsolete. You have no function, Mr. Wordsworth. You're an anachronism, like a ghost from another time. I am nothing more than a reminder to you that you cannot destroy truth by burning pages. You're a bug, Mr. Wordsworth, a crawling insect, an ugly, misformed little creature who has no purpose here, no meaning. I'm a human being. I exist. And if I speak one thought aloud, that thought lives even after I'm shoveled into my grave. Delusions, Mr. Wordsworth. Delusions that you inject into your veins with printer's ink. The narcotics that you call literature, the Bible, poetry, essays of all kind, all of it, an opiate. You walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 26, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And tell us what you think about the show, and tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. Today we're going to actually continue a bit of a theme that I, that I was running before, more on capitalism a little later on. It's amazing the unrelenting attacks that are being made on capitalism as a concept. But also some other interesting issues. Robert, I understand you're going to be talking about the choice. Is it a, a choice? Of what between life and death, I guess. Life and death, yeah. Life and death, reason reason and irrationality. Reason and irrationality, life and death, yeah. Okay. And I wanted to start off with something that might touch on your subject. Um, And this is about something that just came up recently. And of course, our opening commentary, our opening clip was from an episode of um, The Twilight Zone. And of course, both sides in that opening debate were a little bit incorrect, wouldn't you say? Both were wrong. Yeah, yep. the state could not possibly prove that there's no God, since you cannot prove a negative. Nor is preaching the word of God any protection against the state as such. More often than not, during history, they were one and the same, <laughs> the state and religion. 
But the destruction of human freedom, you know, has one iron rule behind it, says narrator Rod Serling, that logic is the enemy and truth is a menace. And that is so true even today, not just to you know, absolute states, but even just to socialist states, to any states on the left. That's how they seem to work. And he says, not a future that will be, that might be. Of course, we could be heading into something like that, and parts of the world are like that. Which brings me to a very bizarre uh, article that, that drew, drew my attention to this, and it was written by, of all, of all people, Conrad Black, that appeared in the National Post on March 21st. And his, his criticism of atheism, and the heading read, The Shabby, Shallow World of the Militant Atheist. And I have to comment on this, because I wonder why he even wanted to go there to try and make the case he's making. But here's basically the summary of his full-page article, and, he, and this is his commentary. He writes, what a shabby level of mockery and, and sophisticated evasion many of the militant atheists are reduced to in comparison even with the famous skeptics of earlier times, people like Bernard Shaw, Bertrand Russell, and Sigmund Freud. Prominent militant atheists he's, is what he's after. He, he doesn't like today's... I don't, I don't even know what militant atheists means. It's, it's, a, it's a slur. It's a slur, yeah, including Richard Dawkins, Peter Singer, and the inevitable Hitchens. Now, we featured them on the show before, and uh, I don't really see anything militant about them. What's militant about them is that, well, here's what he says. He says, the current militant atheists are those well-known and learned professionals who not only strongly dispute the existence of God, but are hyperactive on the international speaking and debating circuits and evangelizing random audiences both to the non-existence of God, hardly, hardly a novel contention, nor one any of them puts forth with much originality, but to the evil and destructiveness of religion itself, he points out. Without some notion of a divine intelligence and its influence on the culture of the world through the various religions, there would be no serious ethical conceptions. Without God, good and evil are just pallid formulations of like and dislike. This is a large part of the core of the atheist problem, writes, writes Black. The articulate spokesmen for God's existence accept that they cannot prove their case. The atheists purport to disprove the theistic case, but they've never got past their inability to dispute that spiritual forces and perceptions exist, or that unexplained developments that are, in fact, miraculous, sometimes occur. Nor can the atheists ever grapple plausibly with the limits of anything or with the infinite. They rail against creation, but something was created somehow at some point to get us all started. And that's basically the major points that he made in his essay. And I found interesting the first uh, comment that was posted to his, his online essay. The first guy named Seamus says, What a pant load. I think we should expect better from Mr. Black. And quoting Ricky Gervais, he says, Atheism is a faith the way that not skiing is a, holiday, is a, is a hobby. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and that's true. Excellent. Now, you know, what I found most disappointing in Mr. Brown's commentary is that he's attacked the, athe the, the atheists, the people, and not atheism, the specific ideas that he associates with the atheists. Nor has he de defended his proudly admitted, quote, inability to prove his, his case, end quote, with even an attempt to at least to try to disprove the other guy's case, so he didn't even go there. The atheists have nothing to prove. 
I know. They, they're not making some but arbitrary the, assertions no, to prove. The ball's not in their court. That's right. That's the whole thing. You know, and his, his essay was a complete statement of assertions and basically broke down into two different interpretations of God. One is a creator of the universe and all that exists, and the other with God as the standard of good or morality as such. These are two different concepts of God, by the way. In short, without God, there would be no universe, and without God, there would be no standard of morality. This is what Black is arguing. Now, of course, if he's looking for someone who's more in the line of, you know, the period of, of time in which he likes the old skeptics, well, I got somebody for him, and it happened to be the same person I've been quoting for the last couple of weeks, H.L. Mencken. And he wrote this. This is absolutely brilliant. He actually made a point here that I'd never considered before. He says, There is, of course, no support in either logic or evidence for the theory that the universe is ruled by a conscious force. All it shows is that modern man, despite the progress he has made, is still the blood brother to the savage, and prone on very slight provocation to return to his native animism. It moves, ergo, someone must be shoving it. But all that this syllogism really proves is that man is still unable to throw off altogether his primitive pattern of thought. What he must grasp at last is if he is ever to escape his immemorial bondage to brutal and irrational gods and devils is the fact that the idea of causation does not necessarily involve the idea of a conscious cause. It may well be for all we know to the contrary, and the evidence pro is almost overwhelmingly impressive that the universe is operated on a plan which does not call for the existence of any animating will at all, that it is purely impersonal, uh, uh, purely impersonal and automatic, and it has been so throughout all time. How was the universe set spinning? The answer may be that it was never set spinning, that the spinning has been one of the signs of its existence since the, since the beginning that was never a beginning, but simply a state truly sempaternal. Rather curiously, all the major religions and philosophical systems entertain the concept of an inf infinite future, and multitudes of men seem to have no difficulty in grasping that. But so far, the race has steadily rejected, or perhaps more accurately overlooked, the concept of an infinite past. Yet the latter, it must be manifest, is at, le is at least as plausible as the former, right? If you've got infinity, it's going to have to go both ways, right? Once man has taken it into his thinking, and not before, he will cease to afflict himself with gratuitous theories about the identity of the person or persons who set the universe to spinning, theories that are not only gratuitous, but also eternally vain, for even the most subtle of them leaves unanswered the question as who created the original spinners in the first place. <laughs> now, Conrad, or contrary to Conrad Black's assertion, there's really no evidence or logic to suggest that the universe was created at some point nor is making such an assertion proof of anything. Why does he make that assumption? Who says that something had to be created at some point? Some point in time? Some point at some specific location? Something that was previously a nothing? The sheer number of contradictions one begins to encounter by adopting that assumption soon becomes insurmountable and turns into a self-referential loop. Why is it easier or more desirable to believe that something came out of nothing than to believe that something has always existed and that non-existence, nothing, is a non-possibility? Of course. And consider this contradiction, as was pointed out by Mencken. It's not the atheists who can't grapple with the concepts of the infinite. It's the true believers who insist that there's an infinite future but no infinite past. We have to have a beginning. At some time there had to be a beginning, a big bang. God created something. If this is true, then there would also be no infinity at all. 
Since infinity is a concept related to time, and if time had a beginning along with existence, it would also have, have an end to existence, and not everything would end. You can't have your creationist cake and eat it too, is I guess what I'm saying. I think I've eaten more of that stuff than I can handle. You know, as Salim Mansour pointed out too in Tom McConnell's show this past Monday, you know, the group ISIS is completely motivated by this idea of an end time ideology, that time will end and that they want to speed it up, get there quick, right? As to the moral dimension, the belief in a deity has completely clouded true and legitimate moral principles for many years. I think that's the, the big revolution we have. We got away from religion and back to rationality. Rationality is what morality is. I don't see any other definition to it. And as CJBK's Andy Utman so bluntly put it on his show a week or two ago, to get into heaven, it doesn't matter how good or virtuous you were during your life, although you must be good. What counts is that you believe in God. He was incensed to learn that many clergymen within certain church-going denominations are atheists, and he saw this as a contradiction with respect to the word church. He was thinking exactly like the state spokesman in our Twilight Zone opener today. Atheism is not a belief system, nor a philosophy, nor a religion. In a way, it's really just a word used to convey a very considered no, or I disagree with the mystically-based, faith-based concept of theism. Even if there were zero believers in a deity on this planet, that wouldn't make a single one of us an atheist. <laughs> right? You can't have an atheist without a believer who's labeled the atheist as such. And like so many labels... It is used to avoid the debate. So, when believers in a deity label non-believers as atheists, it is really not so different from what Karl Marx did by promulgating the term capitalism when referring to an economic system that cannot possibly be an ism. An ism denotes politics and ideology, not economics. There's no ism about capital. Capital is merely saved wealth, earned or created, and held or owned by the person who earned it. The real isms related to capital, I think, are, are the political schemes devised to swindle the owners of capital from their wealth. The best known of those isms are called socialism, fascism, and communism. Those are the real capital isms, as far as I'm concerned. More on this when we return. This is Ray Bennett, acting as moderator for the Western High School Radio Forum. Our topic today, what is capitalism? We hear capitalism, capitalistic system. On every hand, on the radio, in newspapers, magazines, books, in lectures and daily conversation. But just what is capitalism? To start our forum, we will present a few candid interviews, recorded remarks of representative citizens of our town who were asked for their opinions about our capitalistic system. Capitalism? Well, why should there be any question about it? Hasn't it given us the highest standard of living in the world? We don't have free enterprise. Just bureaucratic red tape. The government ought to keep its hands off business. Freedom of contract? Don't know about that. We've got the union and seniority. I make a living. I should worry. Where's all this competition we've heard so much about? You call these prices low? Well, perhaps I'm glad I can work for myself. With capitalism, you, you take your choice. It seems that capitalism means different things to different people.
hear now from our town treasurer, Mr. John Howard. We say we live in a capitalistic society. What does that mean? Well, we can point to certain fundamental ideas which we say are part of a capitalistic system. For example, private property. Individuals or corporations may own land, natural resources, buildings of all kinds, machinery and equipment for the production of goods, facilities for the transportation of goods, and the goods themselves. In a capitalistic system, these are usually private property. Another idea fundamental to capitalism is the profit motive. For the sake of profit, we cultivate the land. We build great factories to produce goods. We sell for profit. The goods thus produced, we transport over large distances, still for the sake of profit. Those who have savings often invest or lend them, hoping for a share of profit. And in so doing, help to build the industrial might of the nation. Some other ideas are basic to capitalism. Competition. Freedom of contract. Free enterprise. What do they mean? Could these rights exist without laws that define and protect them? Do just these few things make up a capitalistic system? Or should something more be said? Perhaps your forum will have some of the answers. There is more to be said, Mr. Howard. A great deal more. That's why we're holding this forum. And of course that was from uh, the 1948 Coronet Films uh, that we used last week as well. An excellent piece on capitalism. You know, chronic ignorance about and hatred towards capitalism continues unabated in the pages of our daily papers. And, I, and I'm always forced to think, you know, it ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble as what they do know that just ain't so. <laughs> and that's how they think about capitalism. On it goes, unrelentlessly, unceasingly, all working towards repeating the same patterns of history we've seen in both the recent past and even in the ancient past, none of which has to do with capitalism. Case in point... Um, Roy McGregor wrote an article in the Globe and Mail called New Victims of Communism, Memorial in Ottawa, a Looming Disaster, and most of this was about some of the building issues behind it. But of course, uh, he writes, Canada, of course, is a recognized world leader in apologies. Only a fool would deny that millions have been the tragic victims of communism, but that number pales, surely, in comparison with the victims of capitalism, he writes. If we, this is in the Globe and Mail. If we agree to date communism to the Russian Revolution of 1917, uh, feel free to argue the point, the dating of capitalism's crimes would have to extend back beyond the Crusades and the Spice Wars to the very first deal that went badly sour. Now, that's just amazing that he could say such a thing. So what does he say? The first deal, so a deal is capitalism. The fact that you and I have a trade, that's capitalism to him. There's no ism about it when he's talking like that, right? You know, in the whole, the, the, the entire set of circumstances surrounding the architectural criticisms behind this um, project that they're putting in Ottawa could have been lifted from the pages of the Fountainhead, which I think is no mere coincidence, since Ayn Rand was acutely aware of her subject matter, particularly when it came to the subjects of communism versus capitalism. And 
you know, there's a lot of issues that that are that are involved in the building of this this monument that they're doing in Ottawa. But victims of capitalism, that's a contradictory phrase. How can anyone be victimized by having a right to own and control private property, the freedom and right to trade peaceably on a market free of coercion, be considered a victim? Capitalism is merely the economic condition. It's not a system that arises in a free society. You know, all those things that we heard in that clip that we just heard about from, you know, all the the parts, the integral parts of a capitalist society, whether it's the right to trade freely, to be free from coercion, to have private contract, uh, free from physical force, each one of those things is a part of capitalism, but is not capitalism in and of itself. Capitalism, in its objective meaning, has come to represent the economic dimension of the free society, of the true liberal democracy. Now, the opposite of capitalism is, I couldn't think of another word, Robert, slavery. That's the opposite. And the Crusades are not capitalism, not a mark of any capitalistic era. And, and it's just amazing how people think this way. And I'm beginning to realize the conservatives are not uh, offering us anything Again, you know, to, su- to support capitalism, their contradictions simply overwhelm conservatism. And that's the main reason that the conservative parties in this country are doing so poorly in preserving capitalism and freedom. The further removed they are from the principles of capitalism, the more they sound just like the out-and-out socialist parties. And that day has long since passed. There's no official opposition to the socialist fascist communists, either in parliament or in the legislature, other than the Harper government's symbolic attempt to erect a shrine to communism in the midst of the country's capital. That's conservatism in action. So there was another interesting um, letter to the editor and another commentary on this. Uh, Communism's a sad chapter in Canada's history, reads the headline on Jerry Nichols' March 18th London Free Press editorial on the memorial to communism's victims, wherein he he correctly cites the fact that our intellectual, cultural, media elite have always viewed anti-communism as a bit tacky. The official position of sophisticated thinkers, you see, was that the Soviet Union and China were morally equivalent to the decadent imperialist United States of America. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, for instance, actually said he admired the efficiency of China's communist government. Even worse, Green Party leader Elizabeth May, after hearing about the memorial to the victims of communism, wondered why there was no monument to the victims of capitalism. Apparently, May doesn't realize that the victims of communism were men, women, and children, while the victims of capitalism were the Edsel beta tapes and the new Coke. (laughs) Oh, I I thought that was brilliant. But, of course, here is a response from a fellow named Walt in the letters to the editor to the Free Press regarding the article I just read. And he wrote, Jerry Nichols' comments are embarrassing. He dismisses Elizabeth May's astute views on capitalism and her empathy for its victims. There have been, still are, and likely will be millions more people far more negatively affected than an Edsel or a beta tape. Our history is replete with the devastation of capitalism's lifeblood. It's working people, the slaves, the peons, the serfs, the laborers, who have been the cannon fodder of the greed-driven, cap- greed-driven capitalist economies of the world. It is apparent that there is still a great need to work together to avoid our planet's self-destructive greed-based death wish. I can't, I I had a hard time reading that. I don't know what world he's talking about because it's not the one I'm living in. No. You know, this writer sees capitalism exclusively as production in whatever form it might take from slavery to serfdom, neither of which has anything whatever to do with either the political or economic definition of capitalism. Capitalism means the opposite of slavery, for heaven's sakes. You can't say, that's the proof they give you that capitalism 
hurt millions. Slavery, slavery, that's capitalism to them. But capital, uh, slavery, however, is consistent with communism, fascism, and socialism. Their difference in this regard being in how each system organizes its slaves. The communist state owns them, the fascist state directly controls them without the necessity of owning them, and the socialist state exercises its ownership and control by indirect means, state monopolies in the field of economics, taxation, prohibition, relating the functions and activities that no government should be intervening with. Socialism is merely the road towards communism or fascism. To be able to say in the same sentence that history is replete with examples of slavery and serfdom as a consequence of the capitalist economies of the world is just such an outrageous contradiction. It's of the grossest proportions. I'd just like to hear one single example of what these capitalism is destructive peons mean when they say that because they'd never give you an example. The reason we never hear one is because there aren't any other than this imaginary slavery thing. Again, how can ownership of private property, freedom of trade, I mean, ownership of private property, freedom of trade, prohibition of coercion, that's what capitalism is, how can you equate that with slavery, which is exactly the opposite of that definition? Well, obviously, we're and talking. They do. We're talking about definitions. We're using one, uh, the proper definition. They're they're not. No, the very word capitalism wasn't even invented until Karl Marx, at the same mm. time of the revolution that that uh, someone there referred to, um, and he was a communist through and through, and he came up with that that term. Communism is an evil political philosophy right to its core. You want to talk about destruction? Just look at communism and fascism, two philosophies literally based on slavery and coercion. You just can't get more explicit about it. And you couldn't possibly ask for more evidence, given the millions, openly slaughtered by these regimes. So, you know, if you're wondering why do societies and cultures continually drift towards the left, away from freedom and capitalism, rather than towards what is right and just, I think it's just that too many people are willing to accept what they believe to be something for nothing from their governments in the hope that they'll get comfort and security in return somehow. You know, Ronald Reagan popularized the saying, a government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything that you have. Well, that's where it comes from. There's no two sides to that coin. Unfortunately, Reagan failed to popularize the meaning behind that saying. The people who purposely misrepresent the concept of capitalism could justifiably be called evil. And why? Because they don't want you to be in a clear position to choose between what your real alternatives are. On the other hand, the people who use the word capitalism incorrectly or in error are like that fly that keeps banging its head against the glass window no matter how many times it fails. It's trapped. It just can't get out. It's trapped by its own logic. Over the past few shows, I've illustrated this very contrast of these two different types of people who misunderstand capitalism using examples like H.L. Mencken and Glenn Pearson. Whatever one calls a system that they might regard to be the ideal, it has to have a name. And if it doesn't, it has to be given a name, a word used to subsume the entire concept that's descriptive of the entire social condition. The problem faced by most is that no one has a word to describe their ideal concept of society, even though that word has already evolved into existence. Most people just want to live in a a live-and-let-live kind of way, which politically cannot be allowed to be a fuzzy kind of concept. There's a critical and precise means necessary to make such a word a reality. In the beginning was the word, and the word was freedom, specifically blended for life on this earth. Capitalism is the economic condition that results from having the right to free choice, a choice unhindered by the coercive will of another individual or group.
By failing to grasp the objective meaning of capitalism, many have denied themselves the very solution to the real problems that they are describing, from slavery to serfdom. Now here's Ayn Rand, who is the author, as I say, of uh, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and the other one I can't remember because it's a longer title. Of a novel? No, 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 uh, not the novel, of but the, the new book that you have out, Objectivist... Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Exactly. Now, you said that you wouldn't mind if I didn't read that book. You told that to my staff. That's right. And I didn't. I confess that to you. I want to be very basic here because there are many people who don't understand objectivism, who don't know what it is, but who have read much about Ayn Rand and have read her books and kind of want to know where she's coming from, if I can use that phrase. So let's just basically say what objectivism is. Okay? And make a long speech about it? Oh, not too long, no. no because that's terribly difficult, you know. To begin with, it's a philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's a philosophic system. And philosophy is the science that studies the basic nature of existence. So it's a pretty technical subject. And anything I say briefly will not really do justice to my philosophy, but I can try to summarize well, it. Well, can I ask you some specifics then about it? Yes, sure. All right. How does objectivism relate to me, the individual? What well, does it do for me? Are you a human being? Mm -hmm. Well, then it relates to you. It tells you how to lead your life and how to achieve things, how to be happy. It tells you the fundamental principles by which you can make your own choices. Above all, it tells you that you have the means to make these choices, that your mind is valid, that the reality you perceive really exists, and that is epistemology. Mm -hmm. That's a branch of philosophy, and it, then it tells you how to make the base, by what principles to guide the basic choices of your life. Now, there are many philosophies that would offer that to an individual. Oh, yes. There are religions that offer it. There yes. are forms of government that offer it. How does... Not forms of government. That's politics. That's a different branch. That comes later. Well, yes, but governments in some areas, in some instances, would define for you choices or dictate to you oh, yeah. how to live your life. Yeah. But I'll retract governments and just say religions are philosophies. Yeah. How does objectivism differ from the philosophies that many of us have been exposed to in our youths? Uh, philosophies based upon religions, theologians, dogmatists. The f very first difference. Uh, objectivism tells you that it is not right, it is not proper to men to take anything on faith. Religion is a matter of faith. You accept a religion emotionally or because you were born to it. You have not chosen it rationally. What objectivism will tell you is that reason, man's reason is his basic means of survival. That is the most important faculty which he has and he has to guide his life and make his choices by means of his rational faculty. He has to make his own choices, but he has to know how to make them. It is immoral for him to act on his emotions, to be guided by the whim of the moment. That objectivism holds as very wrong, very immoral. And morality, in fact, consists of following your reason to the best of your ability.
You love this country, don't you? Passionately. Yeah. Very, very much. And consciously. I love it for its ideas. And I've seen enough of the other side so I can appreciate this country. You might even get emotional about this country, huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> Why do you want me to get emotional? <laughs> might even thank God for it, huh? Yeah. yeah. I may not uh, literally mean a God, but I like what that expression uh, means. Thank God or God bless you. Uh, it means the highest possible to me. And I would cer certainly thank God for this country. And thank you for being here tonight. <laughs> That's so. Come down. Thank you very much for and, asking me. I enjoyed it. Okay. And please come back, and God bless you. Thank you. Same to you. That, of course, was Ayn Rand on the Times Tom Snyder show back in 1979. And I'd like to comment on a recent personal blog post by Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party, which can be found on his website at blog.paulmckeever.ca. It's titled, The Choice, Ayn Rand versus the Status Quo. Now, I'm going to read Paul's blog in its entirety. It's not that long, but um, it bears listening to in its entirety. Here it is. One of my Facebook friends recently posted an article that a clinical psychologist wrote about Ayn Rand's influence in the United States, penned by someone named Bruce E. Levine. The article was titled, Clinical Psychologist Explains How Ayn Rand Helped Turn the U.S. Into a Selfish and Greedy Nation. I quickly glanced over the article, which was full of the usual ill-informed ill ad hominems. On my Facebook friend's wall, comments to the article were numerous and sympathetic to the views of the article's author, such as, Horrible selfish woman. Her personal life bears it out. One of the worst people to emulate. I got that she thinks people who are good-looking have the right to walk over everybody else. Her objectivism is simply adolescent fascism, etc. I replied as follows. Rand's Metaphysics Existence exists. What exists, exists independently of your mind. Life is not a dream, and buildings don't stand because you think they do. If you were to die, the sun would still come out tomorrow. Silly, right? Her epistemology. Your senses provide you with the evidence of what exists. If a claim, assertion, is illogical, it is false. If a claim or assertion is not ultimately supported by physical evidence, it is arbitrary. If a claim is a logical conclusion, ultimately supported by physical evidence, it is true. Insane, right? Her ethics. Dead bodies don't value anything. Only a living thing can value things. Therefore, your life is your highest value without which nothing could be of value to you. Given that your highest value is your life, your highest purpose is continuing to live by pursuing the material and spiritual values that make your survival and happiness possible. Things like food, shelter, love, admiration, etc. Those values don't land on one's lap. One has to take the steps that, in reality, in the long run, prove to be the steps that work. The only steps that work, in the long run, are rational steps. Rationality is one's highest virtue. Rationality involves honesty, integrity, justice, independence, productiveness, and pride. Attempting to get material or spiritual values through dishonest, unjust acts, lying, cheating, stealing, etc., will fail in the long run. 
the liar will be tangled in his webs, etc. Moreover, no happiness comes from winning a foot race by cutting across the course. Wearing a first place medal by cheating will bring you not happiness, but guilt. What a bunch of evil nonsense, right? Her politics. Every individual has the right to live and to pursue his or her own happiness. Therefore, every individual has rights of life, liberty, and property. The right to life implies that no person be murdered. The right to liberty implies that no person be enslaved or raped. The right to property implies that there be no theft. The difference between, say, doctor-assisted suicide and murder, consent of the person who will die. The difference between, say, making love and rape, consent of the people involved. The difference between theft and charity, the consent of the person who earned the stuff changing hands. And because there needs to be a single objective system of laws that everyone has notice of and that applies to everyone in the same way, there needs to be one lawmaker, a government. Classic villainy, right? Of course, there are alternatives to Rand's philosophy. Metaphysics. We can all just believe that life is but a dream, that nothing really exists except that which we imagine. We can believe, for example, that there is an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God and an afterlife, and that no matter how badly we screw up this life, it's all going to be fine in the afterlife, where everything will be the best and everything will be free. Epistemology. We can choose to believe things that are illogical or for which there is no evidence. Why? Well, cause gosh darn it, it feels so good to believe that stuff just pops into existence if we pray, or agree it into existence. Ethics. We can choose to make our neighbor our personal slave or milch cow. Let that guy work for your lunch. You've got a bum leg, and he's a rich guy anyway. He can afford it. Besides, Netflix just added Get Smart. You've got some binge-watching to do this week. Hey, and maybe you and another fella can drug that what's-her-name and have your way with her because she's way out of your league, right? Or skip the drugs. Just break into that guy's house, grab a suit and the keys to his Beamer, and tell what's-her-name that you're an agent looking for models for the cover of Vogue, maybe. If you play on her hopes, she'll sleep with you. It doesn't uh, matter how she'll feel or that she'll discover you to be a fraud, because in the short run, you'll get what you wanted. Politics. On second thought, why go to all the trouble of breaking into that guy's neighbor's house? Vote for that guy who's going to tax the living hell out of your neighbor and give you all the freebies you're looking for. Who knows, if the politician gets desperate enough, maybe he'll promise hooker vouchers and free Netflix. So much easier, right? and not all silly, insane, evil, or vile. In fact, the alternative to Rand's philosophy, well, it's pretty much status quo. Who needs Rand when you've got the Pope and Obama? Hey! Cleaning out the old dryer lint, huh? Not only is it courteous, it's safety smart. Every year, 15,000 fires are caused by accidental dryer lint ignition. Now you're supposed to say, wow, what an interesting fact. Come here, you crazy, nerdy guy. I could never be mad at you. (laughs) Wow, that's all you got after you were the most obnoxious person on a double date that included Howard Wolowitz? (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I really am. It's not 
right to mock what a person believes in. Thank you. Would you be willing to go to my psychic and see what it's all about? Would you be willing to read a book that concisely explains how all psychics are frauds? I would not. Okay, let's go see your psychic. Really? Well, yeah, one of us has to keep an open mind. You're saying I don't have an open mind? No, no, not at all. Let me help you with this stuff. You know I believe in ghosts, too. Great. And astrology. I know. And pyramid power and healing crystals. Oh, no, no, no. Crystals don't work. <laughs> really? That's the line? Psychics are real, but crystals are voodoo? Oh, voodoo's real. You don't want to mess with voodoo. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude or discourteous, but before we begin, I'd just like to say that there is absolutely no scientific evidence to support clairvoyance of any kind. It, which means, and again, no insult intended, that you're a fraud, your profession is a swindle, and uh, your livelihood is dependent on the gullibility of stupid people. But again, no offense. So, Bob. What do you think of uh, Paul's uh, <laughs> objectivism versus the philosophy of the status quo? Well, I was surprised to hear that uh, Get Smart was coming out on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had all those episodes already. Uh, I do, actually. Yeah, but, uh, but no, but every, of course I'm going to, going to agree with that. I'm, I've been a, a fan of Ayn Rand, and I've understood her philosophy for quite a while. And, and yes, these are the issues that we're dealing with. But you can see how, even from what I was saying in the first half of the show, how people can be so confused about simple concepts that, that, that mess with them. And there's, I think there are two, two different kinds of people, the people that lead the charge on some of these ideas. And they certainly fit into the category that Paul's talking about. But the average follower is not always in that case. Some of them are just misled and would... Totally, of course, totally grasped the truth once it was made clear to them. But they would have to come to that under understanding on their own. You cannot force a person to, quote-unquote, believe anything it, that they don't themselves consensually take on. I always look at the, the people who don't hold objectivist philosophy and who uh, embrace the status quo. Um, I don't vilify them right off the top. I just consider them to be wrong. Wrong. I mean, they, they, they can't right. prove that's, their assertions. That's a good starting so just point, wrong. Yes. Mm -hmm. If they continue to hold it, then I start to come out with uh, maybe well, with some name-calling and some labels. Once you see the motivations, and sometimes the motivations are clear, but denied by the person who's, 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 being, who's the motivator, right? Doesn't understand sometimes, or doesn't want you to know what his real motivations are. That's a good place to start, yeah. is what's, what's behind their mm -hmm. beliefs, yeah. Um, to that point, I shared Paul's article on social media and received this comment from John, an acquaintance of mine. This is what he had to say. Good article. I enjoyed her contributions to rational thought, but I've always realized she was pretty simple in her approach to Christianity. That's why I have never, nor will ever, buy into political systems or parties that take the same approach to believers as she does. That we are just silly and insane, as Paul attempts to lay out in his blog piece. By the way, church was good this morning. John apparently felt insulted by Paul's suggestion that people 
uh, or to be more accurate, Paul's uh, reassertion from Rand that people who follow the status quo philosophy of a non-objective reality, a democratic epistemology, a sacrificial morality, and status politics are silly and insane. I find it interesting, though, he appeared to take no exception to Paul's assertion that such people are also evil and vile. It was the silly and insane comments that got him going. There followed a lengthy back and forth by John and Paul, with Paul asking John the simple questions. One, if there's no physical evidence for a claim, is it arbitrary? As Ryan Rand said, it is. If it's arbitrary, is it silly? And two, if a claim is illogical, is it insane to believe it nonetheless? John, of course, refused to answer the questions, but I will. The answers to all are yes. Asserting an arbitrary claim is silly. To just make stuff up without a shred of evidence is silly. Any rational person person should dismiss as silly any claim of the arbitrary. If someone said that the moon does not exist, an arbitrary assertion which denies the observable evidence, one would immediately conclude that such an assertion was a silly one. You know what? It might be a silly assertion, but it might have a non-silly objective. Somebody might be ripping you off or wanting to take something from you, and that's not a silly (laughs) objective in that sense. So they tell you something that's got nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the distraction. It sounds like all those things that Penny believed in Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Except for the crystals, of course. Yeah, they don't well, work. they don't work. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> yeah. Now, likewise, if somebody said to you that there's a personal God who created the universe, that the universe was only a few thousand years old, and that when you die, you get to go to his big house and worship him for eternity, one would immediately conclude that such an assertion was a silly one, since there is not a shred of evidence to back up such an absurd claim. John, in his back and forth with Paul, continually reminded Paul that there are billions who believe just as John does, as if truth were a numbers game and the person who attracted the most number of followers was correct, regardless of the arbitrariness of his beliefs. John even suggested that he debate Paul with a crowd voting the winner. Of course, John was um, following the epistemology of the status quo, as Paul pointed out, that we can agree stuff into existence, that truth is what we, as a collective, say it is. As far as the insanity of those who still hold an illogical claim in the face of irrefutable proof against it, Albert Einstein said that insanity was doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. It's not a clinical or a legal definition of insanity, but a a definition, I believe, fits Paul's usage of the term. It's illogical, absurd, irrational, and, as I said before, just plain incorrect. I think the use of the term... I I, I don't think we mean insane, literally. I think it's more of a social judgment. (laughs) Exactly. That's why I had to make the distinction. We're not talking clinical insanity here. The people should (laughs) be locked up. Wait a minute. What are you guys doing? (laughs) No, it's a social convention. It's just insane. It's irrational. It's incorrect. I think the use of the term incorrect or simply just wrong best sums up why a person can hold an irrational belief without evidence and still be able to put his shoes on in the morning and hold down a steady job. He's correct about his belief... Now, he's incorrect, rather, about his belief in the origin of the universe and of the purpose of man's life here on Earth, but he can still drive a car. Unfortunately, it's when you're wrong in your metaphysics and your epistemology and your ethics that you are more than likely going to be wrong in your politics. Now, it turns out I know John personally. He's what 
you might call a backroom boy in the progressive conser- conservative party. If we look at the past actions of the PCs, his party, we see that their Christian roots and grassroots have given rise to some of the most vile and evil laws in this land. Remember that John did not seem to disagree with Paul suggesting that such people's politics were evil and vile. That's because they are. Under a freedom government, people can practice their religious beliefs freely. Christians can go to church, give to charity, and refrain from mind-altering drugs and alcohol. They can do or not do all of the actions they consider to be moral, as long as they don't violate the life, liberty, and property of another person without their consent. Freedom Party is a party which rejects compulsion. In this sense, it ironically emulates many Christ-like qualities. It renders unto Caesar. It prohibits theft and violence. It allows for freedom of choice. And perhaps this is why the Freedom Party is actually embraced and supported by many religious people. Of all denominations, and of of none. Exactly, yes. But the progressives in Ontario, and the conservatives federally, have, over many generations, proven that they use politics to govern the behavior of non-Christians. Remember, they don't need to pass laws to govern the behavior of Christians, because such citizens, well, they're already supposed to be acting in accordance with the moral dictates of Christianity. It's the non-Christians which the laws of the progressives and the conservative parties in Canada are directed These parties of Christians have supported and passed laws which prohibit drug use to such an extreme that the penalties for growing cannabis are greater than the penalties for raping a child. John's parties, until recently, prevented people from working or shopping on a Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) The act in this case was actually called the Lord's Day Act. What a giveaway. (laughs) (laughs) A subtle hint. (laughs) They control the sale of alcohol to an extent not seen in any other country in the world. The sale of liquor and beer is freer in even the most repressive dictatorships on earth, but not here. They tax alcohol and cigarettes with the expressed intent to lower the use of these products. In other words, to govern behavior. They're called sin taxes because, for many Christians, pleasure is a sin, whether it be from cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, or sex. Remember last week, Bob, Mm -hmm. I asked you, what is a... What is morality to uh, the status quo, to Christians? It's always about sex. Right. right. But in the broader sense, it's about pleasure. Yes. Vices. That's, that's the sex, sex for non-procreational purposes. If you oh, want yes. To that way. Yeah. yeah. Sex for non-procreation. Oh, that's fine. But don't dare take a birth control because then you might, might be um, inclined to have sex not for procreation. Don't drink uh, alcohol. Don't take drugs. Don't do anything for pleasure. Now, remember that the conservatives and the progressive conservatives, they supported censorship boards uh, designed to purge our land of sexually explicit or, in their minds, sexually deviant material, including uh, homosexual material. They tax us so that they can redistribute such money to the poor in an effort to put their depraved altruistic morality into practice. They also gave us one of the almost only jurisdictions in the world with where you can't buy private health insurance to compete with the governments. Exactly. That was another the wonderful... conservatives yeah, did that. No, it just it, it boggles the mind. That, that doesn't even match what we are told is conservative philosophy aside from the religious aspect. The con- like I said yes. earlier, the contradictions are just inherently built in. And it's uh, exemplified in this one mm-hmm. quote from progressive Ernie Eves in Ontario mm-hmm. who said, and I quote... 
The purpose of government is to redistribute wealth. A conservative said that. A progressive conservative. John's party said that. The actions of John's politics Thou shalt are, not steal. Obviously, you never heard of that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the actions of John's politics are evil and vile, and based on silly and insane notions of what it means to be moral. The fact that he's often a majority does not lessen the impact of his political actions, nor make them any less evil or vile. It just affects the rest of us negatively. Yes. His is the politics of sacrifice for the greater good, whether you like it or not, whether you are a Christian or not. His is the politics against personal pleasure and happiness, hence the so-called anti-vice laws. His is the politics of exclusion, where an objectivist, like you and I, Bob, or an, an atheist, would never make it to a position of leadership because he would be considered immoral. Ayn Rand was a true hero in a world surrounded by people like John who hold insanely illogical and ridiculous beliefs and whose politics are destroying all that is good in people. Ayn Rand dared to point out that the emperor is naked, that the beliefs held by the teeming millions around her were not only untenable, but also responsible for most of the suffering in the world. Rand spoke for a struggling minority of people who wished only to live a life of happiness here and now on this earth. For that, she is constantly vilified. While the only answer a Christian can give for their beliefs is faith. Rand's philosophy of rational self-interest can be substantiated with reasoned argument from first principles through to even the highest branch of philosophy, aesthetics. But as I said on last week's show, understanding such a philosophy requires effort. It requires a conscious effort to focus and think. It requires work. Faith, on the other hand, is effortless. It requires nothing but the denial of reason. Islam is an aptly named religion of faith. Islam means submission. Christians, too, submit their rational faculty to the whims of the priests and the popes. They trust others to think for them, which is why they, their only defense against Rand and objectivism is ridicule and name-calling. By the way, that article which uh, Paul was addressing by the psychologist, I did read it. It was like walking through uh, a cesspool. But it had nothing whatsoever to say about objectivism per se. It talked about Rand's um, infidelity, mm. marital infidelity. It talked about her personal behavior. They can't touch the philosophy of objectivism. Objectivism stands up against any rational argument. It is the antithesis of faith. For that, it is unjustly vilified. Existence exists. Reason is the only means of cognition. Rational self-interest is moral and good, and capitalism is the only morally defensible political system. Those who deny these things are silly, insane, evil, and vile, regardless of how many of you there are. You know, and, and Robert, uh, just to make a point clear, I want to make it clear, I'm not an atheist. I'm a person who believes in rationality. Like I said, exactly. if, if, if no one believed in, an, in a god or a deity on this earth, none of us would be atheists. And also, what I find odd is, if you have faith, keep it at faith. Don't try to argue it on logic. You can't. Even by your own admission. Why, by definition. Well, yeah, why do you go there? Like, like Conrad Black, why did he even go there? He says, well, I'm going to give a logical argument. Of course, we can't logically prove this, but here, here we go. Why did he even bother doing that? 
There was nothing to be gained by it. I don't under other than an outright attack on reason. Yes. And that's what we're here to defend. And that's it for this week. And so please join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Read red. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. The worst premise ever of any video game ever? Final Fantasy Legend for Game Boy. First one. Oh my god, it's kind of role-playing. You get to pick four companions. You go to five different worlds. You meet the heads of those worlds and kill them. And then you get to meet God. And God is a tiny Amish man on the Game Boy screen. <laughs> and then you kill God. And that's the worst premise ever. I know that. I'm not made of stone up here. But it's the best. It was the best. It took me eight months to beat that game. It was the best $65 I've ever spent in my life. I stood in front of God for a month, switching guys, switching weapons. I couldn't kill him. I gave up. I called the Nintendo game counselors. <laughs> it's real. It's not free. It's $2.99 a minute to talk to Eric. He's 12.